You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 97. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You have reached another Local Maximum. We're going to get a little bit more technical today, folks. So this discussion will be of particular interest to you if you are working in the field of computer science or software engineering. And that, of course, includes all my data science machine learning folks, which I know there are a lot of you out there. But for the rest of you, this discussion will bring some of the key insights that you really need to know if you're not one of those things. So it is worth sticking around. Uh, And I want to remind you that today's episode is sponsored by Manning Publishing over at manning.com. And actually, the books we're talking about today are published by Manning. And we said good things about Manning in the discussion. But I just want you to know, I didn't know at the time that Manning would sponsor this episode. So that's great. Uh, and, um, you know, I didn't have to edit anything out. It was just good that we had all, the, all, that, all that good stuff in. In addition, the book we're talking about, which is Classics Computer Science Problems in Python, we're giving away five free eBooks to the first five emails I get at localmaxradio at gmail.com, classic computer science problems in Python. One of the things I really liked about studying computer science at the university level was like the, the richness of problems that computer science has and the diversity of problems too. I mean, one of the reasons why I switched to being a computer science major was uh, you know, the, the whole interdisciplinary aspect of it. I could do the math stuff. I can do the product building stuff. I can do the human psychology stuff, human computer interaction, all of that. And, you know, we talk about these problems like traveling salesmen today and the New York City subway system and hyperloops and the evolution of species. And all of these awesome real world images kind of come to mind when thinking about these problems. And the solutions uh, can be put, put into code like Lego blocks. Um, Dennis Crowley of Foursquare, who is a, as you know, is a frequent guest on the local maximum talks about building products as kind of rearranging Lego blocks, but which is kind of existing product features or existing products that are out there and you sort of rearrange them into an interesting way. But it's the same thing for building algorithms and code. And the book we're going to talk about today, Classic Computer Science Problems in Python, will teach you the basic Lego blocks for tackling the world's computational problems. Um, My next guest is the author of classic computer science problems in Python. Uh, We talked a little bit, you know, found a lot of uh, commonalities between the stuff that we worked on uh, in college and the stuff we were interested in in our timelines. He's also an assistant professor of computer science and innovation at Champlain College and a veteran of the startup world. David Kopek, welcome to the show. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Max, thanks so much for having me here. It's really a pleasure to be here. Yeah, well, we're going to talk about computer science today, but I was looking into you. Uh, you are no stranger to uh, podcasting. You, you've been on a lot of podcasts, and uh, I think you've done some podcasts, right? Yeah, I love podcasting. It's really become a hobby of mine. Tell me more. How'd you get into it? Well, I started listening to a lot of tech shows probably about five, six years ago. And before that, I used to listen all the way back to 2005 when podcasts first came out. I was into news shows a lot. And then I thought, you know, five years ago, there was kind of a the start of the boom happening. I was like, yeah. I could probably do this. And at least I would learn a lot doing it. So I did a podcast for a while about iOS consulting. So building apps for other people on a contract basis. 
And that lasted for about 20 episodes and it was a lot of fun and I had some great people on it. And now I do a business books podcast with a couple of my friends from college and we read a book each month and kind of talk about the implications for your career of the suggestions in that book. Oh, cool. That's I'll uh, I'll make sure to link to that. I, I did not find that one. Um, I think, man, 2005, I was on college radio in 2005. Sometimes I think, you know, what if after I just graduated from college, if I just jumped on like, oh, six, just like jumped on the podcasting bandwagon and just started doing them weekly like I am now, but like not getting any listeners. Sometimes I think, man, imagine where I'd be at now <laughs> you know, with this yeah, podcasting. No, I was also doing college radio in 2005 and uh, I really enjoyed it. I didn't continue with it. And I really regret that. I really regret. I, I feel like I would have been an okay DJ, maybe not like the shock type of DJ, but I think I would have been an okay kind of music and news DJ. Yeah, what what did you do on your show? Well, we, we mostly played was it? it was Dartmouth. We mostly played music and talked a little bit about kind of political issues of the day and so it was all over the place. Nobody listened, so it didn't really matter what we said. Oh, but man. you know, it was um it was AM fourteen hundred in, in New Hampshire, if anyone yeah, remembers that. Uh, th- thirteen forty in, in New Haven. It was Yale radio that I was on. We're on the same time. We theoretically could have uh, done a crossover show at the time, but we didn't know each other. <laughs> That's pretty interesting. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, that was that was one of the most fun things about my undergrad um, that uh, I, I've been able to rekindle in recent years with the podcasting, but uh, maybe for like 10 years, I just j- dropped it completely. Yeah, well, you've really done an amazing job with the podcast. I've been listening to a little bit of your back catalog. And so, you know, it's like all of us today, if we have the motivation and we put the hard work in, we can be radio stars, right? A little bit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. One of the great things about uh, living today, I guess. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, all right. So let's let's talk about the, 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 the topic at hand. Uh, you know, you've written a couple books on classic problems in computer science uh, in both programming languages, Python and Swift. I think written is also, I mean, it, those books, you know, it's not just like writing. It's, it's a lot of, um, it's a lot of, and, and not just editing, which is also part of writing, but man, coming up with the problems and the solutions, a lot of programming that goes into it. So uh, I just want to start, you know, not everyone listening to this show has a degree in computer science. So what do you think that the average person should know about computer science as a field that they typically don't? Yeah, so there's a lot of confusion amongst, for lack of a better word, lay people sometimes about what computer science is. And a lot of people confuse computer science with IT, so information technology. A lot of people think, oh, computer science is the science of using computers. No, Uh, information technology is a degree in how do we use computers, how do we uh, apply computers to an organization or to uh, an endeavor in business. Computer science is about how do we use computational tools to solve problems. Now that sounds pretty broad and it is. So there's a lot of sub-disciplines of computer science. The vast majority of people who graduate with a computer science degree become software developers. I'd say probably 80 to 90% of people who graduate with a computer science degree become software developers. So there's also degrees that are more specific, degrees like software engineering, that are just about how do we construct software. Computer science is a little more broad than that. It's how do we solve problems using computational tools, which encompasses everything from artificial intelligence to uh, more basic elements of constructing software. 
Yeah, absolutely. And um, just so you know, if you major in computer science, your family will still ask you to fix their computers. It doesn't matter. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, well, I mean, most people's families would. Um, all right. So uh, what advantages to do software engineers and other professionals, let's say like designers, product managers, and even kind of executives of companies have when they understand the basic algorithms of computer science? Because I know you've mentioned before, this book is, is partially targeted towards people who maybe are self-taught, they've been programming for a while, but they don't have the kind of basic theory down. Right. Absolutely. So there's a lot of self-taught programmers out there who do great work. They build amazing software and they didn't have that CS degree. This book is aimed partially at them because we want them to know some of the problem-solving tools that are out there, well-established, well-tested, work really well, that are available to them that just because they didn't have that, that education, they, they don't know about. And the thing you're missing out when you don't know about those tools is how oftentimes, how can I more efficiently solve a problem? You might have found a way to solve the problem, but it might not be the best way to solve the problem. Or maybe you don't even know where to begin. So we hope throughout the course of the book to give people a broad survey. It's not a deep book. We don't get into any of the problem solving techniques in a huge amount of depth. But it's a broad book where you get exposed to a bunch of different problem solving techniques. And then the next time you have a problem that you don't know how to solve when you're writing software, now you know a technique you can reach for. It's not that we expect you to necessarily implement that technique from scratch. We do implement everything from scratch in the book. Uh, we expect you to basically probably pick up a library. So we're not, if for example, we have a chapter on neural networks. We don't expect you to go write your own neural network when you need to do some image classification. But maybe you didn't even realize that picking up a neural network library like TensorFlow or, or Torch uh, was really the right move to solve that problem. And not only that, but now you'll understand a little bit about how TensorFlow works, and that will maybe help you as you use TensorFlow. So it's about knowing what tools are available to you, and that will make you a more efficient software developer. It'll make you write better software. Yeah, it's interesting. I kind of think in terms of um, software engineering for myself, I sort of went in the opposite direction. I learned the theory first, and then I started building things. Machine learning, I, it was kind of like a little bit of both. I, I did some of the theory first, but then when I dove into it, you know, here at Foursquare and, and other problems, I then had to dive back into more theory. So sometimes having that programming experience gives the motivation to want to learn the basic problems uh, a bit more. Absolutely. And, you know, this is not to put down people who don't have CS degrees. Some of the best programmers I know, and I'm sure a yeah. lot of people feel the same way, are, are self-taught programmers. And the education you get in computer science at, a, unfortunately, a lot of schools doesn't always actually make you a good programmer. Sometimes that education is too theory heavy and you never get into enough of the how do I actually build stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, how, how do you feel about how data structures and algorithms are usually taught? Um, it seems like it's similar in, in a lot of schools and um, you kind of take a different approach with these books. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm actually teaching a data structures and algorithms class for the first time this semester. Uh, so it's been uh, very interesting having written the books and now going back and, and teaching a, a related class. Um, I would say that I do think that the way that a lot of schools teach it is too theoretical. So I, I think that it's important that students have a strong mathematical foundation, but at the same time, what they're going to be doing day to day in um, as a software developer, which again is what 80 to 90% of them will end up doing, is not going to be solving proofs uh, or constructing proofs rather. It's going sure. to be um, actually 
building using data structures and algorithms as building blocks to build more complex software. And so I think that a good data structures and algorithms course has a theoretical component, but also has a heavy applied component. And I think that's the best thing for most students. That said, um, it depends on what you plan to do after. If you're going to go to graduate school and be a CS re researcher, maybe more of a theoretical approach makes more sense for you. But for like I said, that's not what most people with CS degrees do. Yeah. I mean, it, it's... It's interesting. I was in an interesting spot where I, you know, I like to build things that people use, but I was also really interested in the theory. So I know a lot of builders are like, I don't care about the theory. I just want to go. But I'm like, no, 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 I want to do the proofs. And that's, I don't know. I feel like it's very rare. I feel like I have to kind of adjust my uh, pitch depending on who I'm talking to. Um, right. But yeah, uh, I, I think it, I think there's value to that. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be a lot of theory. Obviously, it's mostly a theoretical class. I'm just saying you need to take that theory and then show that you can apply it as well. And that's where a lot of the real learning comes from. How do we use data structures and algorithms in constructing software? It's in taking the theory and applying it. Yeah, yeah. So I, I was able to look at some of these problems. I, I want to call out specifically uh, the chapter on graph search algorithm, uh, because there's something really going interesting going on with that. You have these three different data structures that you point out, and there's there's queues, there's stacks, and there's priority queues. And the way I see it, all three of them do something similar. They all you know take take objects that you give it, and then they return it back to you at a later time. It's just they they pick a different order to return it back to you. And this is kind of the one of the major aha moments that that I had as an undergrad that you can kind of drop one of these things into search and then get entirely different search strategies, uh, if that makes sense. So w what's your approach to teaching graph search and what's the approach that you take in the books? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, when teaching graph search, I think it's important to use a lot of real world grounded examples because a graph yeah. is kind of an abstract concept that a lot of students have never seen something like before. Yeah. It's taking them into a whole new world of mathematics. And it's also like a different, you know, then you have to d describe, no, this is not the same graph as the graph that you had in calculus and all that right. stuff. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it's really important to ground it. And so I like examples that are really easy to visualize, such as the subway system in New York City or right. uh, a train network. And that's actually what I use in the chapter in the book as I talk about the hyperloop that Elon Musk is talking about building out throughout the country. Um, and then I also like the example of a maze. And that's what we use specifically in the graph search uh, sections that you're talking about, because it's so easy to think about who the successors are for any node. And the successors are where can we go next from some point in the graph? So easy to think about that in a maze because it's a grid and you can just think about, oh, I can go up one node or I can go to the right or I can go down. So very easy to visualize. Um, talking about breadth first search versus depth first search, breadth first search is let's search broadly going out one step further in every direction at a time till we hit the goal. And depth first search is saying, let's go as far as we can in one direction until we hit a barrier and then let's rewind and at the last point that we could have gone a different direction and try a different direction. So depth first search says, let's go really deep, really fast as much as we can. Breadth first search says, let's carefully creep along a little bit further along from where we started in multiple different directions till we get to the goal. Now, those sound like really different search strategies, but the yeah. reality is that the code, as you see in the book, is almost identical. In fact, it is identical except for one thing, which you mentioned before, which is the data structure you use for 
determining where do you go next. The data structure we sometimes call the frontier. So that's what parts of this graph, and the, for those that don't know what a graph is, a graph is basically a set of nodes that have connections between them. It's that right. simple. So, and so it, yeah, for, so in the, in the Hyperloop example, mm -hmm. that those would be cities. Right. And then the connections between them would be you know, Hyperloop connections or train connections or whatever that you could build. Right, like tunnels. Yeah. Yeah. So like, so we sometimes use the terminology um, vertices and edges. So in that case, vertices would be Hyperloop stations and edges would be tunnels between Hyperloop stations. And so when we're talking about breadth first search and depth first search, we need to figure out which stations do we go to next to try to get to the goal station that we're looking for assuming we're starting from some start station. And we call that sometimes the frontier. That's the potential stations we're thinking about going to next. And so two different data structures are a queue and a stack that we might store that frontier in. And in a queue, what we do is the first station we put into the queue is the next station that we're going to explore. In other words, the station that's been in the queue the longest is the next one that gets explored. In a stack, it's the last station we put in is the first station that we explore. So the station that's the newest within the stack is the first one we're going to expand next and search through. It sounds really simple. It is really simple. These data structures, queues, and stacks are really easy to implement. And, but you just drop one in for the other, and you radically change what the code does. You take the same code for the, for the rest of the search function. You just change what the frontier is. Is it a queue or a stack? And suddenly you're doing depth first search in the case of the stack or breadth first search in the case of the queue. That's a big aha moment for students because they realize, wow, such a small change can have such a big impact. And it really completely transforms how the search progresses. The other aha moment I think for students is that at this point, we're combining multiple abstractions together to do something a little more sophisticated. So we have these data structures that uh, we actually usually implement on our own in a class like data structures and algorithms. They're not that hard to implement. We have this code for the search algorithm that we implemented. And then the interlocking of the two together really does something quite powerful. And I think that's um, that, that point where you get to taking multiple abstractions and putting them together uh, is a really exciting moment and uh, eye-opening moment for students. Yeah, and I feel like breadth first search and depth first search might sound like you know very technical terms to people who don't know what they mean. But I, I I almost feel like when you watch someone look for something, say online on the internet, they're either taking one of those two strategies. I don't know. Let's say someone's kind of trying to look through a web page for something, you know, and you could mm -hmm. say, okay, well, I'll, I'll take the first link, I'll see where that goes, and then oh, that page has something interesting, I'll take a second link, and so on. Or you know, then there's someone who says, no, I'm going to open up every single link in a new tab, you know, and then yep. uh, and then and then look at all of those first before going any deeper. Uh, so it's like it's almost formalizing what people the strategies that people tend to take naturally uh, into code, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, that's, I think that's a great analogy you made. And in fact, I think it's probably a better analogy than I use in the book. I use an analogy of an onion in the book, which is, okay, there's something buried somewhere within an onion. Maybe there's an impurity or something that you're looking for. Depth first search is kind of like sticking a knife deep into the onion and hoping that you found it. Um, and breadth first search is kind of like peeling the onion back one layer at a time uh, until you meticulously find where the, where the impurity is. Um, yeah. So... I, I like yours better, though. It's a little less violent. It's a, <laughs> it's a little bit more every day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so 
what kind of hurdles do people often have to overcome when they start diving into these basic questions? Uh, do you find that there are certain concepts that students have trouble with, and how do you address that? I think that something a lot of people have trouble with is actually motivation, honestly. And that, that might sound like a little bit of a cop-out, but the truth is that a lot of people have been doing fine developing software without knowing all of these data structures and algorithms. And that's true. So like we talked about before, there's a lot of people building amazing software who don't have a CS education. But how much better could their software be if they did know a little bit more about these problem-solving techniques? So I think actually having the motivation to go read something that might not be immediately applicable to you in the thing you're developing this moment, but might give you some knowledge that will be useful for you later on um, is, is, a, is a hurdle for a lot of people. And, and maybe they're afraid also that it's going to be too mathy. And one thing we've really tried in this classic computer science problem series is to make the books approachable to people with a limited math background. You are not going to find proofs in these books uh, because that's not what our target audience is. If you want to see proofs, you should take a formal class in data structures and algorithms or a discrete math class or uh, read a textbook on data structures and algorithms because these are not textbooks. But we're trying to make it approachable to people who might be scared off a little bit by, by some of the math. It doesn't mean we don't use math, obviously. Everything's built on the foundation of mathematics. But we try to make the math as easy as possible, use as little mathematical notation as possible, um, and not scare people off with, with proofs. Yeah, no, there, there is, it's, it's interesting. You find motivation almost when it's too late. I was just thinking of something that happened a couple of weeks ago at, at work where one of our, one of our services was, was broken in a specific instance. Let's see how the best way I could describe it was it had to match, um, 40,000 geofences. Those are like, you know, uh, kind of think of it as as circles on the uh, on the map that we want to see if people are in, and they were trying to match it with four hundred thousand four square venues. Those are points of interest, and basically for each one, it was doing like a linear search through all four hundred thousand, and it was taking a million years. <laughs> and I was like, oh, you know, I could fix this in uh, I can write a better one in ten minutes, and and it'll work, and it did, and you know those those come up occasionally. They do. And, and if you didn't even realize that the problem was that you were doing a linear search and that's, you know, uh, O of N algorithm, then right. you might not have been able to identify the problem in the first place. Yeah, yeah. And I, I sort of, just to bring it back to kind of like a, the, the layperson, so to speak, I sort of say, well, if I have to find, you know, a, a, a specific topic in a book and I have to look through every single page. Well, maybe if I have to do it once, I could look through it every single page. But if I know I'm going to have to do it many, many times, eh, I might as well uh, make sure that book has an index or something or even a table of contents or something like that. <laughs> I could find it more quickly. And all we're doing is the equivalent of that. Right. That's absolutely right. And to, not to put too fine a point on it, but if you're a professional building software, don't you want to know the underlying techniques that underlie the tools that you're using? Yeah. Uh, so for if you were going to hire somebody to work on your gallbladder, and I heard this analogy in the book, Ogilvy on Advertising. Um, so you were going to hire a surgeon to, to work on your gallbladder. There's some great surgeons who work on intuition, right? 
Um, but who would you hire? The, the person who's really good with intuition, who hasn't read any books on gallbladder surgery, or the person who maybe doesn't have quite as good intuition, but is, really has a deep knowledge of, of gallbladders and, their, and how to do the surgeries on them. Um, why do we not hold our profession to the same standard or any profession? Um, it, it's important to, to spend the time to gather knowledge so that you can be as efficient as possible and as productive as possible at your job. And so maybe that sounds a little bit like, you know, uh, I don't want to be like talking down to people, but people have to study you got to study yeah. a little bit uh, at some point in your life. You got to study your profession a little bit. Yeah, and yeah. I'm not saying you have to buy my book, although I think my book is good. But even if you just take a free online class on data structures and algorithms, if you've been developing software for a number of years and you've never been exposed to this stuff, um, I think it's really worthwhile. I think that that point is even more important when it comes to uh, on the machine learning and data science side, because I feel like there are a lot of people who are doing data science and data analysis, and they know what put buttons to push. Maybe they've uh, done, you know, a few projects, but the theory on that gets kind of tough, you know, and so that, mm -hmm. that sort of weeds out. There's a lot of people who don't want to get into the theory, but what I found is that a lot of the, a lot of the projects outside the box don't work immediately, and you have to, you know, know why, why they're not working and um, also, even if they do work, you have to be able to explain why they work. And that even if the explanation, a good data scientist can give a simple kind of explanation, but they better know the complex explanation uh, behind it. Right. Absolutely. And people are looking for more and more depth, I think, uh, in, in a field like that. So, for example, at our school, we've started to offer undergraduate degrees in data science. And that is already training somebody throughout their whole undergraduate experience who very well might go on to do a master's or a PhD is going to be somebody who um, is able to hit the ground running even more than somebody who uh, is kind of getting little bits and pieces of it as they go. Yeah. You know what I found um, coming back to uh, concepts the students had trouble with? It, one that I found uh, when I TA'd for a data structures course and the particular book we were using, it was in Java mm -hmm. and it introduced generic types early on mm. and people just couldn't wrap their head around that um and it was really tough to teach that while trying to get the basics of data structures at the same time i think they were trying to get okay let's learn the peculiarities of the language the latest feature of the language while at the same time get the data structures and algorithms down but uh I, yeah a lot of people came in for extra help on that one that, you know, that was a terrible mistake I made teaching the class this semester. Our intro sequence is in C++. Our intro to programming, okay. advanced programming, and data structures and algorithms courses are in C++. And I spent, I used too many advanced features of C++ in the course. And students then ended up sometimes spending more time worrying about how to use this advanced feature of C++ than they did um, on some of the data structures and algorithms concepts. Not all the time, but on a couple assignments, I went a little bit too far in my scaffolding code um, yeah, with some it, of the C++. And that was my own fault. You know, I was just, I've been out of the C++ world for a while, and I was, I kind of spent the summer in preparation for teaching the class learning modern C++, and then maybe I got a little carried away. So I'm sorry if any of the students are listening. <laughs> yeah, well, it's easy to forget, you know, what comes, uh, you know, second nature, um, how you know, hard it is to wrap your head around it after you've, like 10 years after you've learned it. It's, um, 
it, it's sort of hard to figure out, okay, this part's going to be hard to learn and this part's going to be easy to learn. Sometimes it's hard to separate out those two. I mean, I found that, you know, I taught a, a, a data science class uh, in, in, in a university in Ukraine, like a three-day workshop class uh, this, this summer. And mm-hmm. that was one thing I realized, that certain things they were just going to brush right through and certain things I really had to focus on, and I just had to get there. I, I couldn't predict that uh, before I went. Yeah, absolutely. You can, you can never tell when, when you're too into it, right? When you're too enmeshed in it, it's hard to get yourself back in the shoes of a beginner and get that kind of Zen mind, beginner's mind. Sometimes people talk about it as, right? Um, get get yeah. into that mindset where what if I really was seeing this, not just for the first time in this language, as I might've been in some of these C++ things, but the first time ever, like I'd never seen this in any programming language before. Um, that you need to really work to get yourself back into that mindset. And I think one important thing in teaching, whether that be in person or in writing a book, is to take feedback. And I think good teachers are people who are good listeners and take are willing to take criticism um, and willing to to pull for criticism. One thing I like about Manning, which is the publisher of this book series, is that they have a very open process during the development of a book. They they put the book out there um, in what they call their Manning early act early access program. They call it their Meet program, and you get feedback from readers already when you've just written the first few chapters. They also have a very formal process of getting experts in the field to review every book of the every third of the book as you complete each third. So they they do a very extensive review process. And I'd written a book years ago earlier in uh, about the Dart programming language for for A Press, and it was. APRESS was good, but it was a much less extensive review process. I think one of the things that's led to Manning having high-quality books is this really extensive review process that they do both from the public and from experts. And I think you need to be open to people saying, you know what, a lot of the ways that you're covering this just don't make sense to me, even if they make sense to you. And you need to take that data and reevaluate. And I think the same happens when you're teaching a class. You need to listen to the students, poll them sometimes. Maybe that's an actual poll that you give them by email, or maybe that's a poll in class, take their feedback and adjust. And it also changes, I think, from generation to generation. There's some things that people were teaching uh, 10 years ago in data structures and algorithms, let's say, that you need to take a different approach today. And it might even be because of cultural things, such as attention spans. Students today Hmm. do not have the attention, like you and I were saying that we were in college about 15 years ago. Um, Students today I hate to say it, but they don't have the same attention span as people did 15 years ago. I think a big part of that, that's of scary course, because when we were in college, you could say that we had less attention spans than 15 years before that. And we did. We definitely did. And I think <laughs> I think a huge part of that is technology. We, we grew up with the Internet um, already, but yeah. students today are growing up with smartphones and they, they're really used to instantaneous results. And we were we were starting to be that. Um, and now it's just hyper that. Um, it's it's magnified yeah, yeah. even more now. And so it's very hard, believe it or not, to get some students to sit and read a book, for example. right? Mm-hmm. Um, or And so you have to find strategies. Okay, how do I present the material in such a way that I'm going to keep their attention while still getting to as much detail as you would have gotten maybe like quietly sitting and, and reading? And you have to make your classes interactive. You have to uh, constantly be energetic and uh, willing to engage on, on every point. Yeah, it's, it's um, well, it, one of the things I remember as an undergrad, especially in some of the, like, 
some of the engineering courses and some uh, was, you know, how many times, that, maybe it didn't happen that often, but every once in a while there'd be a class and I'd be like, nobody in this class understands what the professor is talking about. You <laughs> kind of want to avoid that. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, for, fortunately, at, at Yale, I think that the computer science prof professors were really good um, and that didn't happen that much in those classes, but in some of the other ones they did. Uh, some of the other engineering and science classes uh, and the math classes <laughs> that happen a lot too. <laughs> um, okay, so um, talking about mindset changes, as as your book progresses, I feel like there's a kind of a first half and the second half and the, the, the first half is more pure, at least that's how I was looking at it when I, when I kind of reviewed the book. Um, you sort of moved from the realm of pure calculation to statistical problems, which are the kind that I become more interested in. Although every time I look at the, you know, the, the graph search, it's like, oh, this is fascinating too. Um, but the statistical problems kind of have a very different flavor because you might not find the most optimal results, you know, when you're doing the clustering problem, or you might not find the best neural net configuration. Do you think it uh, takes like a change in mindset to start tackling these other types of problems? Yeah. Um, I would say that actually what happens is it requires more mathematical maturity. Um, I think when you're going mm. from the first half of the book to the second half of the book, you get to a chapter like the K-means clustering chapter, where you need to have some yeah. knowledge of statistics to really understand what's going on. When you get to the neural network chapter, you need to have at least a little bit of background in calculus to really understand how backpropagation works. Right, so right. I, I think the level of math that you need does go up a little bit. That said, again, we're trying to make it as approachable as possible and minimize that. But there has to be some when you get to some of these more sophisticated algorithms. Uh, so that's what I would say that's the main differentiator between the first half of the book and the second half of the book is the second half requires a little bit more mathematical sophistication. Yeah, so uh, one of the things in, in the second half I want to talk about is genetic algorithms because this is a fascinating idea, and I haven't gotten to use them in practice, unfortunately, but I mean, I guess it's similar to some of the hill climbing algorithms that I mentioned in episode four of this podcast, but maybe you could talk a little bit about what is a genetic algorithm and why does it uh, grab people's imagination so much? Yeah, absolutely. So a genetic algorithm is an algorithm that's modeled on the concept of natural selection from biology. Uh, and the idea is we have a population of potential solutions to a problem. And over time, we're going to adjust those individuals. We're actually going to create new individuals. We call the individual, each of the individuals is one potential solution to the problem to try to match some kind of fitness function that measures how close is that individual solution to solving the problem. And of course, when we get past some threshold in the fitness function, we then say, okay, we've solved the problem as well as we were trying to solve it. So how do we go about modifying those individuals over time? Well, we group them into what we call generations. And in each generation, we do that measurement of seeing how well are all the individuals in this generation solving the problem. And then based on how well some of those individuals were at solving the problem using the fitness function, we will choose some of them to be parents um, of solutions in the next generation. So these parents are hopefully going to pass on some of their better traits. They'll pass on some of their worst traits too, but some of their better traits that go towards solving the problem. And then in the next generation, their children, we hope will be, some of them hopefully will be a little bit better at solving the problem. We also will do a little bit of random mutation. 
just like there is in the real world when we have children, right? Our children are a combination of the parents' traits, but they also are a little bit of their own traits from a little bit of random mutation. And so we hope that a little bit of random mutation will hopefully keep the population diverse enough that we'll never get into a local minimum or local maximum, like the name of the podcast, right? Yeah. Uh, well, sure. Because you know, I talk about both hill climbing algorithm and, and Markov chain Monte Carlo. And those are similar in that you're kind of moving around randomly, but you're sort of less likely to take a bad step than a good step uh, mm -hmm. most of the time. But I feel like genetic algorithms... Um, there's an extra setup to it. Well, where first of all, you know, uh, most of the ones that I look at are kind of single parent. Well, it's just you're, you're kind of looking around the the where you are and mm -hmm. it's, if where you are is the parent and maybe the children are nearby. But to genetic algorithms sometimes take multiple parents and combine them, which sometimes you have to be kind of smart about how you do that. That's right. Yeah, that is one of the main complications over something like a hill climbing algorithm. And then also about how do you select which which of the parents are going to be parents for children in the next generation. So there's there's two different ways of using usually doing that. One is called roulette wheel selection and one is called tournament selection. And okay. that, that we get into a little bit of the detail about the difference between those different methods in the book and maybe it's a little more than we want to get into in this episode, but there are many different variances of how to set up your genetic algorithm. And those what we could call hyperparameters will actually have a huge impact on the performance of the genetic algorithm. So it can be a lot of trial and error to figure out what are the exact right setups and configurations for the specific problem you're trying to solve. And then, yeah, also thinking about how you do that combination step that's sometimes called the crossover step, where you take two parents and make a child out of them. That needs to really be done in a careful, intelligent way. Um, otherwise, you can end up just searching in the completely wrong direction. You can be, you can be destroying your, your individuals um, if you're not crossing them over carefully. So can you give an example for us that like where that has worked? Yeah, sure. So genetic algorithms are not that widely used, to be frank. Uh, they are good on problems that we don't have a more deterministic algorithm for solving. Uh, so for example, one famous problem that they have been used effectively in is a traveling salesman problem. That's the problem where you have some person Let's this is let's use the the actual name from the problem. So you have a salesperson who needs to go and visit a bunch of different cities and then return back to their home city. And you want them to be able to visit all of those cities in the sh using the shortest possible path, so as efficiently as possible. So they'll make as to think about it a certain way that they would use as little mileage on their car as possible, make yeah. as few miles as possible. One of those deceptively and, simple to state but hard to solve problems in computer right. science. Yeah, it sounds like a really easy problem, but in fact, it's uh, a very, very hard problem. It's a problem that we do not know a way to solve perfectly in a short amount of time for a large number of cities. Let's say we had thousands of cities that the, this person needed to visit over the course of a few years. We, we wouldn't know any way to solve that perfectly in a short amount of time. Um, but we have good algorithms for approximating it, so getting close to an optimal solution uh, within some range of an optimal solution. And one of those is genetic algorithms. So using genetic algorithms, we can get close to an optimal solution of that for a large number of cities. So, so um, what would the, I, I could see kind of what a, you know, a one parent solution would be where, okay, maybe I'll flip a couple cities, you know, and see if that makes things better or worse. But what would the, what would the crossover be with two parents in that case? 
So I think we'd be thinking about multiple different total configurations of all the cities and how we modify the the potential next city that we go to from any potential city. So I think we're thinking about the problem in aggregate here um, and different configurations of the whole problem in aggregate might be different individuals in a generation. But I have to say, I'm not an expert on solving that problem with genetic algorithms. I also want to read a little quote um, that I, I quote in the book. It's from a data structures and algorithms textbook by Steve Skiena called the algorithm design manual. It's, it's one of the largest, most popular textbooks on, on algorithms. So Skiena writes, I have never encountered any problem where genetic algorithms seem to me the right way to attack it. Further, I have never seen any computational results reported using genetic algorithms that have favorably impressed me. Okay, that's a very strong statement for condemning genetic algorithms from somebody uh, who's a, a true world expert on algorithms, written one of the seminal books on algorithms. Interesting. So that, that's that's bad. I mean, that, that yeah. but, <laughs> but at the same time, um, they are being used in the real world. So they're being used in the real world for problems like the traveling salesman problem. They're also being used in the real world right now for actually tuning neural networks. So here we're combining yeah. uh, two things together. We're actually using the genetic algorithms for tuning the hyperparameters of the neural network. Um, so I know they've been used successfully in several applications. I have a friend who does some research in that area. Uh, so yes, they are being used, but this is not a technique you're going to reach for right away. This is a technique of last resort that you're going to use when you really couldn't find a better technique for your particular problem. But people are still excited by it, though, like you said before, because it sounds kind of sexy because it sounds like, oh, we're going to use evolution in computers. Yeah, yeah. This uh, is how I'm going to get my, my AI or my... Uh you know, my, um, have my computer come out with a completely new design for, for some ordinary object and, and win in the marketplace or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds really sexy and I think people should know about it because when you can't find another solution, it is something you can reach for, but really, uh, it's just a really sophisticated way of doing hill climbing. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I think that, you know, yes, it's not a very good solution for a lot of problems right now, but I have to believe that, uh, you know, at some point it will become part of the mix. I mean, if if nature chose it, then it must be applicable for something. Maybe we're just not doing anything complicated enough yet. Right. And like I said, it is being used for some really hard problems right now, um, but it's just not. So for your everyday software developer, it's unlikely that you're going to reach for genetic algorithms on a day-to-day -day basis. Okay. I, I want to turn to programming language design. Um, and because I think it's interesting, you've gone through the same basic problems with two languages. You've done yeah. one for Swift and one for Python, and you had to make changes between the two books. How does the choice of programming language affect the difficulty or elegance in solving some of these problems? Yeah, absolutely. And now I'm doing it a third time. We're doing the book in Java. So that, Okay. That, I mean, that's that's going to be completely yeah. different than those two as well, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's a great question because people are very into kind of language culture wars of, oh, my language is better than yours. or uh, And I've gotten some very real world writing these books sure. in three different languages uh, experience and, and how do you teach problems in these different languages. Um, I would say it comes down to two things. One is, how good is the language's standard library? I know that might not be the first thing that people think about, but um, the standard library makes a huge difference in terms of 
how much boilerplate you have to write to solve a particular problem. Um, and Python, for example, has a much larger standard library than Swift. And Swift has not the smallest standard library either. I mean, if you think about a well, language like- Swift's much, much newer. Right, Swift is much newer. Um, but Python has a much larger standard library, and that makes writing a lot of the solutions to the problems a lot more succinct. Uh, and that's really nice because it lets you concentrate on kind of the meat of the problem instead of all of this stuff I have to get to doing the meat of the problem. Um, so Python involves a lot less boilerplate yeah. than a lot of other languages because A, it's very succinct to begin with from its syntax, but B, it has a really, really rich standard library. Um, I think beyond that, I just want to just general advice is that as a programmer, I think you should first become an expert in one programming language before you worry about the details of how every programming language is different. Um, and that's something that I think has been something I've learned as a teacher the last five years teaching college classes is I used to think, okay, maybe uh, one of the problems that some students are having is that we're starting them off with too complex a language, which mm. would be starting with a simpler language. But if you follow through on that and you don't just switch them around a lot the first couple years and you really go deep in that language, they're going to be able to then apply the concepts that they learned in that language to any language they learn um, pretty readily and pretty quickly. And so I think it's important to not, when you're first learning, um, to not switch around too much. Get deep in one language, then go broad um, and, and start to learn some other languages. I think that with Swift versus Python, one big difference, of course, is that Python is dynamic language and Swift is a static, statically typed language. Uh, I did something controversial in the Python book. I chose to use type hints throughout the entire book. And that has honestly garnered me some bad reviews because it takes away some of the succinctness of Python. Then there's also been a lot of people who have been like, wow, I love the type hints. I, I learned a lot about how to use them by, by reading the book. Um, but uh, one thing I like about type hints and I like about statically typed languages is that the code becomes a little bit self-documenting because you see immediately. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, you see immediately like this <laughs> as, is what as, as working returns. with uh, lots of people who don't do real documenting. <laughs> right. <laughs> Having right. Uh, self-documenting is always very helpful. Absolutely. And so in a language where you have to say, here's the type of this return, here's the type of these parameters, um, here's the type of this variable, uh, you are forced to be self-documenting in a sense, in a way that you're not in a dynamic language where you don't have to do that. So I think that is a difference because it might actually make your code more readable, even if it is slightly longer. Um, but on the other hand, you can't beat the succinctness of Python. Now, having writing the book in Swift and writing it in Java now, uh, there's something about the the pure elegance that that Guido Van Rossum and everyone else who worked on Python had, have come up with um, that is just beautiful where, where the code looks very similar to a pseudocode that you might see in a textbook. And that's just beautiful. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that I want to, one reason why I want to dive into the book is because, you know, maybe I'm familiar with a lot of these problems, but I don't know the latest, um, I don't know the latest Python syntax and the latest Python features. And I feel like looking at some of the solutions with Python, I can kind of uh, improve my, uh, my, my Python knowledge a little bit. Absolutely. And that's something I hear about a lot is people are, are very 
glad that I did the book in Python 3.7, which is a pretty recent version of Python. It was the most recent at the time the book came out uh, because I purposely did that and then tried to cover some very recent features in the language. Things like uh, data classes, uh, things like f-strings, things like uh, type hints, using some of the advanced features of type hints. Um, and people appreciate that because not a lot of books are doing that for, for whatever reason. Maybe it's because it takes years for a book to get published, but if you time it right and your book happens to come out at the same time that a new version of Python comes out or any language, uh, you can maybe get a slight edge which for, for your readership, which is, hey, you know, not only are you going to learn this concept, but you're also going to learn um, modern syntax in this language, modern features in this language. And I think that's been a real boon for the book. Unfortunately, the opposite happened with the Swift book. We came out with the Swift book. There was a bunch of delays in final production. I finished the book like more than six months before it actually got into production and was, was out there for readers. Um, and by that time, Swift is moving so fast. Every year, th there were big changes between Swift 1 and Swift 5. I mean, that's really, um, yeah, that's really fast for uh, language turnaround yes. time. Yeah, it was. And, you know, a lot of people were not happy about that because they, their code would break. There would be auto updaters and Xcode that would help you get to the next version, but it was never great. Uh, and so the book would come out. And then, unfortunately, a few months later, a new version of Swift comes out. And then your book is a little bit outdated. Python, of course, is a lot more staying power. So does Java. One thing I've been thinking about as I've been starting to write the Java book is what version of Java should I target? So I was originally thinking, I'll just, just like with the Python you book, just, I'll just target the most recent. Right? The latest, which I don't really yeah. know what it is. but Java yeah. 13 is the current version of Java. And by the time uh, the book comes out, it'll be Java 14. So I was thinking, okay, maybe I should do that. Unfortunately, in Java, you have a lot of things holding you back. One is that Android, which is where a lot of people do their Java work, is stuck on Java 8 for various political and legal reasons. Um, so... That's a problem. And then you have a lot of people in enterprise and enterprise who use Java and enterprise moves really slowly. And I think most people in enterprise are still on Java 8 and there's even a lot of people in enterprise still on Java 7. Hmm. So as a compromise, I decided I'm going to use the last long-term support release of Java, which is Java 11. And I know that will cut out a significant number of people, but hopefully there's enough new features in Java 9, 10, and 11 that I'll be covering that it makes it worth it to people. Um, to that, that I did so. Java changes a lot over time. It's, I mean, <laughs> I think of it as stable, but then when I think back over the last, you know, when did I first open a Java? I probably first op cracked open a Java book in like 1998. Who knows? Oh, me what too. Was, yeah. yeah. Who we knows have a lot what, of the same life experiences. Yeah. Next. Yeah. Who knows what was, uh, what was in there at the time. And then, you know, I was, I was teaching in that data structures course I was TAing back, I don't know, 2012 maybe. And so I, I have no idea you know, what it, and, and even then it had changed so much. Um, and, but when you're in it, when you're programming, it, it's like, oh, when are they going to do this next update? It feels like it's taking years, but, mm -hmm. but eventually it comes. I, um, I think the two big moments in Java history, not to get on too much of a tangent, but well, we're, let's, let's, let's do it. Okay. It was when they introduced generics, which I think was yes. Java 1.4 or something like that. That um, was one of the ones that, that when, when I was teaching it for the class, that I was kind of taken aback by. I was like, yeah. oh, wow. 
So that, that was a big change. And then I think the other big one was in Java 8, they introduced Lambda functions. Yeah. And I think that was also a pretty big change for, and Streams, the Streams API as That's well. That's the one I haven't used as much yet. So. Yeah. And so I'm trying to incorporate a little bit of the Streams API into the book because I realize a lot of people like us learned Java in the pre-8 version and never got exposed to Streams. So that that's one thing that I think is important for people to use today because it really is becoming the de facto way that you do a lot of basic algorithmic work in Java. Yeah. So this this ties into my next question, which is sort of a, a more advanced question, but I want to I, I want to see if we can have this discussion anyway because. I, I, I want to ask about the idea of like developing new languages or developing new features in old languages. You kind of like when you're developing uh, a programming language, I think most um, most people who are developing these languages sort of have solutions in mind. Well, okay, here's a problem that current languages don't handle as well. Maybe my language will handle it better. It will just be easier or more intuitive to write the answer for. So how do you feel about these types of CS problems being some sort of a guide for, for people who want to develop new languages? Like, hey, how does this new language handle all these problems? And then you kind of see, okay, well, these, this is where it shines. This is where uh, maybe it, 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 it's not designed for this one. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I teach a class here called Emerging Languages, where we kind of use new languages. We use specifically Go, Swift, and Clojure as a lens to learn general programming language concepts. You know, yeah. what is what is an interpreter? How what is a dynamic language versus static language, etc. Um, so I feel like I'm pretty well versed in this area. And I, obviously, I wrote a book on Dart and I wrote a book on Swift. So I, I like to think of myself as somebody who really studies emerging languages. Uh, and unfortunately, I haven't come to any firm conclusions about what is the right way to go when you're designing a language. Because it, first of all, it's uh, an incredibly monumental task and you yeah. got to really applaud the people who, who take it on. Um, but unfortunately, I think what does happen sometimes, this is the one thing I've observed, is that sometimes people who are overly involved in compiler design ends, end up being the people who are deciding on language features. So the... And that's not, of course, what happened in Python, which may be why Python ended up such a beautiful language. They were uh, focused on the, the programmer. They were, yeah, they were focused on the programmer, exactly. And that's where the focus should always be, because that's the person who 95% of the time is the one who actually matters, right? And yeah. some of the languages that have been so successful, human, despite, What's a, one way to put it? Humans are, are more expensive than machines. Right, exactly. And some of the languages that have been incredibly successful over the past couple decades, kind of unexpectedly, I would say, and I would put in that category Python and Ruby, um, are not very performant languages that were not designed in the best implementation way, let's say. I mean, Python, when you're not using a C extension like NumPy or something like that, can be 30 to 50 times slower than the equivalent C code, as can Ruby. Um, but yet, they, they developers love the productivity they were getting from those languages. And I think that that should always, developer productivity should always be the number one focus of a language designer. And I think that's not the same as how do you implement classic algorithms and data structures uh, beautifully in the language? Because the truth is that even though I, well, obviously I wrote this book and I think people should learn all these concepts, on a day-to-day -day basis, you're going to reach for the standard library or an external library to actually use them. And so what is it like actually writing an app? What is it like actually writing a web service? 
that should be the focus in language design, in my opinion, for most languages. But then, of course, there's not like one thing that has to rule everything, right? Um, there's different languages for different niches. And right. we don't necessarily expect, you know, Rust, which is a very exciting new language, for example, to be used for mobile app development. Yeah. Oh, what is Rust for? I, I'm not familiar. So Rust is kind of like a safer, more modern replacement for C and C++. And, oh, okay. Um, and, and lower level, highly performant programming. It can be used in a lot of other applications, and it is, but it's not probably the the, the language I would reach for, at least, to replace a language like Kotlin or Swift or something like that. But, you know, other people, there's the Rust people can be very, very aggressive. So you might get some emails. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, no, I, I agree. One of the things that um, I like about Python or that, that grabbed me about Python initially is how easy it was to pull in certain libraries and just use them. Mm -hmm. um, and then in other cases, you know, I also like, you know, strongly typed languages where the typing system works. I, I, I don't know if I could describe this technically, but it's like the type system works for you and not against you. Like it actually helps you write better code. Um, and like well-designed Scala does that. Um, but <laughs> when it's poorly designed, maybe it doesn't. It depends and, on and, who the... You know, so you just brought up being able to import libraries well, right? But those libraries yeah. have to exist in the first place. And that's right. all about ecosystem. And that's right. not something the language designer can necessarily control. But, the but they ecosystem... can make it easier for people to kind of, uh, you know, share i don't know they, maybe yes. they can make it easier for someone hey if i write something uh you know it doesn't take me a ton of work to turn this right. into a library that other people can use exactly and that's something that some languages get really right and some yeah. languages get really wrong so or other people to find too not just use to find because that's a that's a bigger thing even with python like the fact that you can find these things there there might be one of the things that's very frustrating in data science is that there are all these um libraries out there but then you find that most of them don't work <laughs> and so right. that's part of the that's part of the struggle yeah 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 and so for example rust has a really good package management system called cargo which yeah. makes it really easy for people to take their work and make it easy for other people to incorporate into their software mm. um and python of course has pip there's a lot of controversies about virtual environments and what's the best way to set up pip but the fact of the matter is it is a one, you are one line away from installing a library in Python most of the time. It's pip yeah. install, the name of the library, and there you have it. Languages that don't get that right, I think struggle. Um, new languages, and there's a lot of new languages that have not gotten that right. Uh, so I think designing your language in such a way that it's going to be easy to build an ecosystem around it, and that also includes community work. That includes having a great introductory guide to the language. That includes having implementations of the language that work on multiple platforms. That includes having a friendly atmosphere where people feel, uh, as a beginner, like they're welcomed. Um, that's a big one these days that's often ignored in, in many communities. Absolutely. Absolutely. So there's languages that did not get those things right, and we can see why they're not taking off, even if technically they might be really strong. Hmm. Well, that's very interesting. All right. So as we wrap up, uh, any uh, final thoughts about programming languages, uh, teaching computer science, uh, the, and the book in Python and Swift? Well, I would just say that a lot of people find learning data structures and algorithms difficult. And I would encourage people to know, first of all, to know that everyone usually finds it difficult when they're trying something yeah. a little deeper than, let's say, what sometimes people call API mashup, which is what a lot of people get into in software development. A lot of people get into this mode where it feels like 
what they spend most of their time doing is learning an SDK rather than solving problems. They're just learning how to use different parts of some SDK or some library and match it up with some other library and SDK. And of course, stretching yourself to go deeper than that and to start to um, think algorithmically can be a challenge. And it's okay. It is hard. Um, it can be difficult. And don't give up on it because you're really going to be a better software developer when you have that those algorithmic tools available to you. And it's okay if it takes a long time for them to sink in. And it just requires, like anything else in life, practice. Yeah, yeah. All right. So the book is Classic Problems in Computer Science. Classic uh, Computer Science Problems. Sorry. I That's okay. The Classic Computer Science Problems in Python and also in Swift and maybe one day uh, in Java as well. Uh, you can get those at manning.com and also I'll link to it on the website, localmaxradio.com slash 97. David Kopeck, well, uh, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks so much for having me, Max. It was a real pleasure. All right. For the whole book series, just go to classicproblems.com. And also, I didn't know this when I recorded this with uh, David, as, as I said before, but Manning Publishing, I'm very happy to say, has sponsored this episode, Classic Computer Science Problems in Python, Classic Computer Science Problems in Swift are both offered at manning.com. Also, Deep Learning with Structured Data, which we spoke about uh, in episode 87, a wide variety of topics uh, in addition to those, are also available at manning.com. PodLocalMax19 is the discount code. You can get a 40% discount on all items at manning.com. That's a lot, 40%. Also remember, the first five people to email me at localmaxradio at gmail.com will receive a code to get them uh, to get a free ebook version of Classic Computer Science Problems in Python. Uh, so if you listened to today's episode and you're intrigued by the book, then you'd better get on that. I keep the show notes page updated, localmaxradio.com slash 97 to see how many are left, but there's only five. So, uh, better email me to get on that. All right. Uh, manning.com, learn computer science, learn technical frameworks, make your job skills more marketable. Um, look into books by Manning Publishing. I've been, uh, you know, looking at the website recently, um, there's a, there's a lot of great stuff on there. All right. Next week, I'm talking about Bayesian inference with a dash of elections and social choice theory, a little bit about how you know election systems work in different countries and all of the uh, recent elections going on. I mean, I, we recorded actually before the UK election, but um, you know, I, it, it's, a, it's a huge topic, which is coming up more and more, how different uh, election systems are run and how polling is... Um, uh, can be accurate or inaccurate, and uh, you know what's going on when when people analyze polls. Uh, a lot of you political jun junkies will be interested in episode ninety eight. I think so. Definitely stay tuned for that. And then we finish up the year and say hi to episode one hundred and the year twenty twenty at about the same time. I'm really looking forward to that. Have a great week. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. The show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel the power.